Section 2 of National Geographic Magazine, Volume 2, Numbers 1 and 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in September 2013. On the Telegraphic Determination of Longitude by the Bureau of Navigation by john alexander norris part two upon the first expedition no telegraph instruments were carried but the use of such as were needed was easily obtained from the telegraph companies the line between aspinwall and panama was in good condition and no trouble was experienced in exchanging the time signals by which was effected the comparison of the chronometers wires were stretched from the observatories in each place to the respective telegraph offices and for the exchange of signals were connected directly to the ends of the line everything being ready the routine of the work was as follows the transit being carefully levelled was placed in the meridian by observation of zenith and circumpolar stars from six to ten times stars and two or three circumpolars were then observed the instrument was reversed in the wise and nearly the same number of stars observed in the new position at some time agreed upon generally when the regular work of the telegraph line was over for the day the wires were connected up and one of the operators came to the observatory to assist in holding communication by a simple arrangement of relays in the line and chronograph circuits the chronometer at one station was made to register its second beats on the chronograph at the other which was all the time being graduated into second spaces by its own chronometer this was done for about five minutes and the times of beginning and ending noted then the connections were reversed and both chronometers allowed to beat for five minutes on the chronograph at the first station this method of exchanging signals was only practicable on landlines or very short cables the ordinary relay used on a landline requires a strong current to work it and would not be affected in the least by the delicate impulse sent over a long cable consequently when the expedition came to compare chronometers over the six hundred miles of cable between aspinwall and kingston it was necessary to use another method at that time the instrument in general use on submarine cable lines was what is known as thompson's mirror galvanometer it consists of a coil of very fine insulated wire wound with great care on a spool or bobbin of vulcanite about three inches in diameter and one and a half inches thick in a hole in the centre of the spool is made to slide a small tube so that the end of the tube will be in the centre of the coil in the end of the tube is mounted a small mirror swung in a vertical position on a single upright fibre of silk horizontally across the back of this mirror is secured a small permanent magnet in length about the diameter of the mirror or about one-eighth to one-quarter of an inch the mirror and magnet together weigh only one or two grains when an electric current is sent through this coil it deflects the magnet and with it the mirror to the right or left the apparatus is exceedingly sensitive so that it is influenced by very feeble currents 
communication has been maintained with an instrument of this kind over the atlantic cables by the current proceeding from a battery composed of a single copper percussion cap with a small scrap of zinc and a drop of acidulated water the use of the mirror is to make visible the movements of the magnet the coil is mounted upon a standard so as to be about eight inches above the table at the distance of eighteen inches or two feet is placed a lamp this is surrounded by a screen which cuts off all the light except that which passes through a tube directed towards the mirror lenses in the tube focus the light on the mirror and thence it is reflected to a vertical white substance a sheet of paper for instance at a suitable distance and appears as a small and brilliant spot a movement of the magnet causes a horizontal deflection of this spot to the right or left depending upon the direction of the current passing through the coil as these movements can be produced at will by means of the key at the sending station it is only necessary to apply to them the dots and dashes of the morse alphabet to have a very ready and perfect means of communication to the uninitiated spectator the facility with which the practised operator translates these apparently meaningless movements is remarkable if the cable is long and not in good condition the signals are sometimes almost imperceptible while any slight jar of the table or apparatus will produce a large and irregular effect earth currents also will cause vibrations hard to distinguish from the signals and if as sometimes happens the battery is connected in the wrong way the signals will be reversed in spite of these drawbacks the skilful operator reads off the message and rarely makes an error this instrument is still in use on some of the cable lines but on most of them has been replaced by a recording instrument also the invention of sir william thompson which is almost as sensitive and of which i will speak later on the key used in connection with these instruments both the mirror and recorder is arranged with two levers so connected that pressing one of them causes a current to be sent over the line in one direction while the other sends it in the opposite the method adopted for comparing chronometers by means of these instruments was as follows everything being ready for the exchange of signals the observer at one station seated himself where he could see the face of the chronometer with his hand on the cable key at ten seconds before the beginning of a minute as shown by a second hand he pressed his key several times in quick succession thus sending a series of impulses through the line which appeared at the other end as a rapid movement of the light to and fro this was a warning signal and the observer at the second station with his eye on the light tapped his chronograph key in the same way making a series of marks which indicated the beginning of the comparison the first observer exactly at the sixtieth second by his chronometer pressed his key quickly and firmly and repeated this operation at every fifth second for one minute the second observer tapped his key promptly as soon as he saw the light move thus registering the time on his chronograph the minute at which the first signal was sent was then telegraphed and repeated back to insure against error 
and the operation was repeated until sixty-five signals had been sent from one station and received at the other. Then the second observer sent the same number of signals to the first in precisely the same manner, thus giving sixty-five comparisons of the chronometers in each direction. The results derived from this method are affected by errors from two causes. One is the personal error of the observers in sending and receiving signals, and the other the time consumed by the electric impulse in travelling over the line and through the instruments. If the same strength of battery is used at each station, and the resistance of the instruments is the same, the errors arising from this latter source will be eliminated by the double exchange. The observer sending the signals kept his eye on the chronometer and counted the second beats by both eye and ear, moving the hand which he had on the key slightly in unison with the beats, and could thus be sure of pressing the key at the proper time within a very small fraction of a second. At the other end of the line, considerable time is lost after the actual movement of the light before the observer can press his chronograph key and the principal error affecting the result is the difference of this time in the two observers, which was found to be very small. As I have said, the cable was first used in the measurement between Kingston and Aspinwall, Lieutenant Commander Green occupying the former station, and Mr. Rock the latter. After the successful completion of this link, measurements were made from Santiago de Cuba to Kingston and to Havana. It was the intention to measure from this last point to Key West, but about this time yellow fever broke out there, and the expedition was ordered by the Secretary of the Navy to return. The Fortune arrived at Washington in April 1875, and the time until November was spent in working up the winter's observations. Speaking in a general way, this work is as follows. From the observations extending over many years, the exact positions in the heavens of a large number of fixed stars have been found, so that their times of passing any meridian can be computed with great accuracy. The transit instrument is furnished with an eyepiece containing a number of parallel lines usually made of spider silk. These are placed in the focus of the instrument, and it is set in position so that the middle line of the group is in the plane of the meridian. The observer provides himself with a list of desirable stars, and setting his instrument on those he may choose, records the time at which they pass each of the spider lines by tapping his chronograph key. If there were no instrumental errors to be discovered and allowed for, if the star's place were known absolutely, and the observer had no personal equation, then it would be only necessary in order to find the error of the clock to observe one star upon the middle line of the reticle. The difference of the clock time of transit and the real time as already known would be the clock error, and no further trouble would be required. But as none of these conditions are fulfilled, it is necessary to multiply observations in order to eliminate accidental errors, and to obtain instrumental corrections which may be applied so as to get the most probable result. Accidental errors of eyesight and perception are nearly eliminated by taking the star's transit over several lines instead of one, and using the mean. Some of the instrumental errors are from the following causes. 
if the pivots which support the telescope are unequal in size the axis of the tube will be thrown to one side or the other of the meridian and the star will be observed either before or after it crosses the weight of all transit instruments causes a flexure of the horizontal axis and this effect is at its maximum at those of the prismatic pattern the spider lines must be adjusted so that the middle one is exactly in the axis of the tube or as this can seldom be done the resulting error called the collimation must be found the horizontal axis of the instrument must be as nearly level as possible and the error in this respect must be found by frequent applications of a delicate spirit level finally the instrument must be directed as nearly as possible to the north and south points of the horizon and a correction must be made for any error in this respect the result of each of these error is to cause the star's transit to be recorded too early or too late and to get the true result they must all be found and applied with their proper signs the inequality of pivots and the flexure correction are found by delicate measurement and observations when the instrument is first used and are recorded as constants to be applied in all subsequent work the level tubes are graduated and the value of their divisions obtained in angular measure the collimation error is found by observing stars near the zenith in one position of the instrument and then reversing and observing others or by taking the transit of a slow-moving star over a portion of the spider lines then reversing and observing the same intervals in the opposite order the error of azimuth or deviation from the north and south line is found by comparing the observation of stars whose zenith distances differ considerably these corrections all being found and applied to the observation of each star the result is the correct time of transit as shown by the chronometer and the difference between that time and the true time is the error of the chronometer a mean of the observations of several stars on the same night gives a very accurate value for this clock error and by comparing the results of several nights work the rate is found by applying the rate to the clock error it is reduced to any required epoch as for instance the mean time of the exchange of time signals and the difference of longitude is easily found as may be imagined the computation and application of all these errors exercising the greatest care to ensure accuracy is a long and tedious process the operations described give a very close result but in order to arrive at the greatest accuracy obtainable the computations are made again by the method of least squares in the autumn of eighteen seventy five the expedition again took the field this time in the side-wheel steamer gettysburg which was much better adapted to the work than the fortune the first link measured was between key west and havana key west had already been telegraphically determined by the coast survey and now afforded a base for the system of measurements completed and for those to follow the next measurement was between kingston and st thomas then from the latter place to antigua and to port spain trinidad from port spain measurements were made to barbados and martinique 
the position at St. Thomas was then reoccupied, and measurements made thence to San Juan, Puerto Rico, and to Santa Cruz. This ended work in the West Indies, differences of longitude having been measured between nearly all the important points connected by telegraph. The latitude of all the stations was also determined by the zenith telescope method, and the position of the stations was referred either to the observation spot previously used, when that could be identified, or to some prominent landmark. Between St. Thomas and Santa Cruz, the measurement was made twice, the observers exchanging stations at the completion of the first series of observations. This was to eliminate the effect of their personal errors, and to obtain a value of these, which might be applied to the other measurements. It has long been known that different people perceive the same phenomenon at different times, varying with different individuals, but reasonably constant with the same individual. In the particular case of observing the transit of a star, most people will record it on a chronograph from one to three-tenths of a second after it happens. In the method of observing by eye and ear, the error is generally much greater. The whole question of personal equation, however, is a mixed one, and I will not attempt to discuss it, but will only give some of the results obtained in this particular work. In longitude measurements, the error from this cause is half the difference of the personal equation of the two observers. If this difference remained constant, then it would be easy to find it once for all, and apply it to all measurements made by the same observers. In the West India work, it was assumed that it did remain constant, and half the difference between the two measurements made from St. Thomas to Santa Cruz was applied to all the other links. The correction was quite small, being only 0.025 seconds. In subsequent work by the same and other observers, it was deemed wiser not to apply any corrections at all, rather than one that was probably not exact, and might be much in error. To show the fluctuations to which this elusive quantity is subject, I will cite the results of some observations made to determine it, by observers engaged in this same work at a subsequent period. In April and May 1883, at Galveston, Texas, two observers, D and N, having just completed a telegraphic measurement between that place and Veracruz, Mexico, made some observations for the determination of their relative personal equation, by observing transits of alternate stars under the same conditions as near as possible. Both used the same instruments, transit, chronometer, and chronograph. On April 30th, two sets of observations were made, showing the difference of the equations to be 0.26 seconds. On May 1st, one set gave 0.32 seconds and another 0.29 seconds. On May 2nd, only one set was made, giving 0.36 seconds, a variation of 0.07 in two days. In June 1884, one year later, 
Another series of observations of the same character was made at the Naval Observatory in Washington, and on the same nights the personal equation machine invented by Professor Eastman was used as a comparison. This is an instrument in which an artificial star is made to record its own transit over the wires of a reticle, while the observer records the same with a chronograph key. The difference is manifestly the personal error of the observer. This gives the absolute equation of the observers, and their difference is the relative equation, and should accord with that found by the method of alternate stars. Some of the results were as follows. On June 4th, the difference by machine of their personal errors was 0 0.16 seconds, and by star observations 0 0.24 seconds. On the 15th of June the machine gave 0 0.10 seconds, and the stars 0 0.24 seconds. On the 16th, machine 0 0.14 seconds, starts 0 0.13 seconds, a very close agreement. On the 17th, machine gave 0 0.07 seconds, and stars 0 0.18 seconds. The observer N combined with another C, who had not had as much experience in observing, gave still more discordant results. On June 20th, the machine gave as their relative equation 0 0.08 seconds, while star observations gave 0 0.27 seconds. On June 23rd, machine 0 0.13 seconds, stars 0 0.51 seconds, and on June 28th, machine 0 0.20 seconds, stars 0 0.35 seconds. In the case of the first two observers, a mean of the determinations amounting to about 0 0.20 seconds might have been applied to the measurements made by them, but as these were made under all conditions of climate, in latitudes varying from 30 degrees north to 36 degrees south, and in different states of health and bodily comfort, it was concluded not to introduce any correction at all rather than one that might be considerably in error. In all of the work, it has been the custom as far as possible to place the observers alternately east and west of each other, so that the result of personal error in one measurement is neutralized to a greater or less extent in the next. Of course, the method of exchanging stations and making two measurements of each meridian distance would afford the best solution of this problem, but except in certain favorable conditions, this is precluded by considerations of time and expense. In the measurement between Galveston and Vera Cruz mentioned above, it had been the intention to exchange stations, but by the time the first measurements was finished, the season was rather far advanced. There was danger of yellow fever in Vera Cruz, and an observer going there at that time, if he escaped disease, would have had the certainty of being quarantined from entering the United States for three weeks or a month after leaving Mexico. Upon the completion of the West Indian work and the publication in 1877 of the results, it was determined by the Bureau of Navigation to send an expedition for the same purpose to the east coast of South America. Cables were in use extending from Para in northern Brazil to Buenos Aires in the Argentine Republic. 
a cable had at one time connected this system with the west indies through british guiana and trinidad but one of the links was broken and there was no prospect of its repair otherwise the station established at trinidad in eighteen seventy four might have been taken as the starting point there was direct communication however between england and brazil by the way of portugal and the madeira and cap de verde islands lisbon seemed to afford the most convenient place to start from but its longitude had never been determined by telegraph and it was decided to request the french bureau of longitudes to cooperate by making this measurement from paris this request was readily granted but for some reason the agreement was not kept for the use of the expedition the old-fashioned sailing ship guard was furnished and lieutenant commander green was given command mr rock being otherwise employed his place was taken by lieutenant commander now commander c h davis u s navy the instruments having been placed in good order and new supplies furnished where necessary the expedition sailed from new york for lisbon in the latter part of october eighteen seventy seven the guard was a slow sailor the weather was rough and the wind generally ahead consequently a month was consumed in making the passage it was the intention to make the first measurement between lisbon and funchal madeira lieutenant commander davis with party and instruments occupied the latter station proceeding by mail steamer at the first opportunity the cable from england does not land directly at lisbon but at a small town called carcavellos on the coast about twelve miles from the city as it was not practicable to connect the land line from lisbon direct to the cable it was necessary in making the exchange of signals to adopt another method or rather combination of methods an officer of the ship was sent to carcavellos furnished with a chronometer and chronograph when the time came for exchanging signals he first compared his chronometer with that at lisbon by the automatic method in use on land lines then with the funchal chronometer over the cable using the mirror galvanometer finally a second automatic comparison was made with lisbon from the data furnished by these comparisons it was an easy matter to compute the difference between the chronometers at lisbon and funchal the lisbon party had been received with great courtesy by the director of the royal observatory captain ohm of the portuguese navy and had been given the use of a small detached observatory near the main building the party at funchal selected a site on the ramparts of an old fort which afforded a clear view and was near the landing-place of the cable here occurred an accident to the transit instrument which fortunately was easily remedied near the beginning of the observations on the first night the wind which was blowing almost a gale lifted a part of the roof of the observatory and dropped one section of it inside the transit was knocked off the pyre and was at first thought to be much injured fortunately the precaution had been taken to bring along a couple of spare instruments borrowed from the transit of venus commission for use in case of such an accident the funchal party was provided with one of these which was set up for use by the next night and the injured one was sent to lisbon for repairs the injury proved to be less than supposed and the repairing was an easy matter 
Upon the completion of this measurement, the Lisbon party proceeded to St. Vincent, one of the Cap de Verde Islands. This is a barren and desolate spot of volcanic formation, but being on the route of steamers from Europe to Africa and South America, is of much importance as a coaling station. Measurements were made from this point to Funchal and to Pernambuco in Brazil, and the guard then sailed for Rio Janeiro. Upon arriving at that point after a long passage, it was found that the cable between Rio and Pernambuco was broken, and there being no immediate prospect of its being repaired, the Pernambuco party was ordered by mail steamer to Rio, and thence to Montevideo. A measurement was made between Rio and Montevideo, and then between the latter place and Buenos Aires, Lieutenant Commander Green occupying the Montevideo station for that purpose. The position of the observatory at Buenos Aires was referred to that occupied by Dr. B. A. Gould, director of the Argentine National Observatory, in a similar measurement a short time before between that place and Córdoba. Both parties now returned to Rio, only to find that the cable was still broken. In order to be ready for work as soon as it should be repaired, Lieutenant Commander Green proceeded to Bahia with the ship and established a station there, Lieutenant Commander Davis with his party remaining in Rio. After waiting a month, and there still seeming to be no prospect of the repair of the cable, the expedition finally sailed for home, arriving at Norfolk, Virginia, after a pleasant and uneventful voyage of forty-five days. Repairs to the cable were not completed until several months afterward. In May of the next year, the party was again sent out, to complete the measurement on the Brazilian coast, and also to measure from Greenwich to Lisbon, the French Bureau of Longitudes having failed to carry out its promise to measure from Paris. There being no ship available for the purpose, the travelling was done by mail steamer. Upon arriving in England, an interview was had with the astronomer Royal, who readily agreed to assist in the work. Lieutenant Commander Green accordingly established his observatory at the landing-place of the cable at Porth Curno in Cornwall, and Lieutenant Commander Davis proceeded to Lisbon and occupied the station used there the year before. Owing to the foggy and rainy weather prevalent in England at that season, it was found impossible to make any astronomical observations at the Porth Curnow Observatory. The work was therefore done this way. Observations were made at Greenwich and at Lisbon, and Porth Curnow and Carcavellos were used as transmitting stations. The chronometer at Porth Curnow was compared automatically with the clock at Greenwich, and by cable with the chronometer at Carcavellos. The letter was compared automatically with that at Lisbon, before and after the cable exchange. At this time there were made at Carcavellos some experiments with a view to making the receipt of the time-signals over the cable automatic, thus doing away with the personal equation of the receiver. The instrument in use for the regular business of the cable was what is known as the siphon recorder, also the invention of Sir William Thompson. In this, a small coil of fine wire is suspended by a fibre of silk between the poles of a powerful permanent magnet. 
the currents from the cable pass through this coil and the action is to deflect it to the right or left just as the mirror is deflected in the instrument already described attached to this coil is a siphon made of a capillary glass tube one end of the siphon dips into a reservoir of aniline ink and the other hangs immediately over the centre of a fillet of paper which is unwound by clockwork if the siphon touched the paper the feeble currents sent through the cable would be powerless to move it on account of the friction and in order to produce a mark some means must be found of forcing the ink through the capillary tube this is accomplished by electrifying the ink positively and the paper negatively by means of a small inductive machine driven by an electric motor the effort of the two electricities to unite forces the ink through the tube and it appears on the paper as a succession of small dots when the paper is in motion and the coil at rest a straight line is formed along the middle of the fillet by these dots but as soon as a current is sent through the coil the siphon moves to the right or left making an offset to this line these offsets on one side or the other are used as the dots and dashes of the morse alphabet a time signal sent over the cable while this instrument was in circuit appeared as a single offset on the paper and it was only necessary to graduate the paper into seconds spaces by the local chronometer in order to have the automatic record required the ordinary chronometer circuit could not be put through the coil directly as it would then charge the cable and interfere with the signals and besides the current unless by the introduction of a high resistance it was reduced in strength would infallible give such a violent motion to the coil as to break the siphon if it did no other damage the result was obtained in this way an ordinary telegraph relay was put in the chronometer circuit and the armature of course moved with the beats to this armature was fastened one end of a fine thread the other end was attached to a slender piece of elastic brass which was fixed at one end to the framework supporting the paper in such a way that the other end touched the metallic vessel holding the ink except when the thread was drawn tight enough to pull it away this the armature of the relay did while the circuit through the chronometer was complete but as soon as it was broken at the beginning of a second the tension of the thread was relaxed and the brass sprung back against the inkwell allowing the positive and negative electricities to unite independently of the siphon the ink then ceased to flow until the spring was drawn away thus leaving a small blank space in the line of dots and forming a very good chronographic record this was liable to a small error due to the length of time that elapsed between the release of the spring by the armature and its impact on the inkwell had there been time for more extensive experiment this difficulty might have been overcome or if the same method had been adopted at both stations the result would have been affected by only the difference between the times of movement of the brass spring which would have been minute lack of time for experiment and the fact that the observers were averse to introducing untested methods into a chain of measurements most of the links which were already completed prevented any use being made of this achievement the measurements between greenwich and lisbon being satisfactorily completed 
Lieutenant Commander Green, by order of the Navy Department, returned to the United States, and the links between Rio and Pernambuco, and between the latter place and Para, were measured by Lieutenant Commander Davis and the writer, completing the work of the expedition, after which the party returned to Washington. The computation of this work showed the somewhat surprising fact that the heretofore accepted position in longitude of Lisbon differed from the two one by about two miles. The longitude of Rio Janeiro had always been more or less in doubt, various determinations had differed by as much as nine miles, but the position finally decided upon by the best authorities agreed very closely with that obtained by telegraph. End of section two.